abortion. We are the pro-life generation. And we this has been a long fight coming. I've been working for Students for Life for four years, but I've been pro-life since I was 12. Um, so this is a really emotional day for me. Um, really happy day, but we have a lot more work coming to us. 55 years of work go down the toilet. It's pretty upsetting. I am going back and forth between being absolutely furious and wanting to punch somebody and bursting into tears. I can't decide how I feel. The Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade, ending an almost 50-year constitutional right to abortion. Ending an almost 50-year constitutional right to abortion. Protests erupted in the nation's capital and continued across the country after the decision. A recent PBS NPR poll found 56% of respondents oppose the Supreme Court ruling. Only a third supported expanding the number of justices on the Supreme Court. But what impact is the decision already having on doctors and those seeking reproductive health care? We'll get into all of that and more after the break. I'm Celeste Headley, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, to let us know what you think or have your questions answered on future shows, tweet us at 1A. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us now is NPR national correspondent Sarah McCammon. And also with us is Mary Ziegler, professor of law at the University of California, Davis. She's the author of Abortion and the Law in America, Roe v. Wade to the President. Mary, let's begin with you in in terms of what we hear from healthcare providers in states where abortion has become effectively illegal. Well, what we're hearing is that they've, they've had to cancel appointments for people um, that were already scheduled, some of them on Friday. There's obviously a lot of uncertainty because the timing um, in each state that has a trigger law or a pre-road ban varies. Some states are waiting 30 days. Some states have a certification process. Some, in some states, things kicked in immediately. So there's a lot of confusion. I think there are a lot of patients who are not really understanding what's going on, who think you know that if they're already on their way to an appointment, they can just go ahead and complete that appointment and realizing that that's no longer the case. So, I mean, really, in a word, what we're seeing is, is a lot of, um, of chaos, um, emotion, and uncertainty. So it, it has been three days since the Supreme Court's decision was announced. Over the past 72 hours, what stands out to you now about the decision in the Dobbs case? Well, I, I think um, as someone who studied this, and I've, I've studied, of course, the pro-life movement, I've studied the pro-choice movement, um, I I'd kind of envisaged how this could happen, right? Um, because, of course, folks in the anti-abortion or pro-life movement have been working on this for 50 years. Um, I would not have thought it would have happened like this in the sense of this quickly when the court's partisan composition changed. I wouldn't have thought you would have assigned this kind of task to Samuel Alito, who I think um, is not known on the court for being um, a bridge builder or being someone possessed of, of a unique degree of empathy. Um, I, I would have expected in some ways uh, different arguments, right? Arguments that tried to make, I think, somewhat more like what you saw in Brett Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, because certainly the court on some level must know that this is a powder keg, right? That this is a decision that's incredibly well known, that's generally popular. The court must know that it's a fairly unprecedented and unique thing to do to, to destroy a constitutional right. And the general tenor of Justice Alito's majority was essentially, we don't have to worry about if people are upset or about the legitimacy of the court. And that, that was the most extraordinary thing to me, um, that this seemed to announce not only a new era um, in, in the law of abortion or the law of reproductive rights, but a new era in, in the history of the Supreme Court. So, Sarah, 
both sides on this issue, um, anti-abortion activists, but also uh, reproductive health care providers, have been preparing for this decision for years, but also especially since the draft opinion was leaked in May. Can you give us an idea of what kind of groundwork has been put into place at this point? Well, this would not have happened if it were not for decades of work by abortion rights opponents at every level of government, Celeste. And I mean, overturning Roe v. Wade has been you know, a rallying cry for many conservatives, many on the right for decades. We heard it really kind of come to a head in the 2016 campaign when Donald Trump and Mike Pence uh, you know, promised to overturn Roe v. Wade, promised to, to choose Supreme Court justices, uh, Trump did, that would that would do that. And so, um, you know, on the right, that has looked like very intentional campaigns to elect conservative U.S. senators, since, of course, they are responsible for Supreme Court confirmations. And very intentional campaigns uh, in Republican state in, in in many states to elect Republican state legislatures to pass abortion bans at the state level, um, and of course uh, working at the national level to elect Trump in 2016. Um, they lost in 2020, but it, it didn't matter at that point, right? Because Trump yeah. selected three Supreme Court justices. Um, you know, on on the abortion rights side. The preparation has looked like, I think, many years uh, among activists of, of concern and even frustration recently that things have gotten to this point. That's certainly what I'm hearing from my sources. And also thinking hard about workarounds, how to move forward in this environment. Some people who are pregnant are having to figure out what they can do. Um, Jenna Kelnhofer from D.C. Uh, works for the ACLU, and she talked a little bit about the costs that are involved in, in, in traveling out of state to get an abortion. Abortion funds help people meet those financial needs, whether it be the plane, whether it be train, whether it be childcare, a hotel, and then helps them obtain the procedure itself. And abortion sometimes at the earliest stages, if you don't have insurance, even the pill itself, a non-invasive procedure that you just take the pill, it takes the care of the abortion, it's $600. Uh, according to a Planned Parenthood fact sheet, abortion medication can cost up to $540. So, Sarah, what have these abortion funds, some of these nonprofits, or reproductive health care providers, how, what are they doing to help people overcome these barriers? Yeah, and, and I should point out that these funds um, have existed all over the country for years now. They're not a new thing. Um, and they exist in response to the fact that already, even before Friday's Supreme Court decision, Abortion was was very difficult to access in much of the country. There were several states with just one clinic. Um, Missouri, for example, where I just visited recently, um, it was down to just a you know a few procedures a month. And states like South Dakota had only one clinic as well, which I think stopped performing procedures fairly recently before the decision even came down. Had to fly doctors in to provide abortions. So. You know, across much of the country, because of a you know again that very long, steady effort by opponents of abortion rights to restrict the procedure in various ways. You know, whether through passing health regulations or rules about the types of facilities or the types of um, you know medical professionals that could provide these procedures or paperwork requirements or waiting periods, um, what have you. Many, many, many rules in place that made it harder and harder to get an abortion. In places like Texas, where there was um, a Supreme Court case several years ago, there's been a steady erosion of clinics. Yeah. And, you know, a state that big, people have to travel hundreds of miles already. So um, these networks have have gotten um, sort of sort of have come together and, and gotten things in place so that patients could call and, and get help with funding for the procedure itself, for travel, for um, 
hotel rooms. And that effort has really been stepping up in advance of this decision. Uh, Part of my reporting, uh, the trip to Missouri that I just mentioned, Missouri and Illinois, involved uh, talking to organizers there who had put together a a logistics center, actually, that that Mm. is bringing together Planned Parenthood and another facility um, to sort of tie all of this together they actually have workers that look at a computer screen and look at all the different funds, funds in Missouri, funds in Chicago, yeah. and others um, that can contribute to various needs that people may have to get them from wherever they are to that clinic for that appointment. I think, Mary, a lot of people are wondering what this decision tells us about the Supreme Court itself. Um, not only public trust in, in it as an institution, but what direction the court is moving. Well, I I think it tells us, obviously, that the court um, is not concerned about popular opinion and is not concerned about elite opinion. Right. Um, And so this is that and that's fairly new. Right. There had been, I think, a largely incorrect but fairly widely held view that the Supreme Court would not want to risk a public backlash by doing something unpopular in the light of day, right, something unpopular that people would understand and pay attention to. And I think equally there was a view um, that the Supreme Court wouldn't want to distance itself too far from general legal opinion. And we've seen that neither of those things is true, in part because the court has, um, I think, established that it cares more about the the views of the the conservative legal movement um, and potentially of American conservatives, but not about popular opinion in general. In fact, there's a, a passage in the opinion where Justice Alito almost announces this. And so, of course, if, if that's true, that means we would expect the court to issue you know, a variety of decisions that may be out of step with popular opinion, um, steps uh, you know, that would uh, be consistent with the court's approach to the Constitution or the, court, the members of the court's ideology. But otherwise, I, I think this is an, an, an unconstrained court, right? Um, a court that doesn't feel that uh, it's accountable um, to anybody but um, the court's own approach or the, co- the court's own ideology. And joining us now is Dr. Aaron King, an OBGYN and director of the Hope Clinic for Women in Illinois. That clinic has provided reproductive care, including abortions, for the St. Louis region since 1974. Dr. King, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me, Celeste. Dr. King, how are you processing the Supreme Court ruling from Friday in terms of thinking about what you are going to do in the future in regards to reproductive health? Well, I think, you know, one of the important voices, obviously, is the voices of the healthcare providers. And I'm really glad you had me um, talk this morning, because I think that it's important to talk about public opinion, and it's important to talk about uh, political rhetoric and opinions. But I think we also need to bring in public health research and medical research. And these aren't opinions, these are facts. So as a physician and reproductive health care provider for over 10 years, I'm a gynecologist. I see patients all the time for all different types of care. But what I know from seeing patients and also from really good research from public health officials, physicians across the country, is that this restricting access to abortion is a major public health issue. We know in states that are most restrictive around abortion, we are seeing much higher rates already before Friday. We're already seeing higher rates of pregnancy morbidity. So that means illness in pregnancy, pregnancy mortality, death from pregnancy, infant mortality. So in states that have restricted abortion, they're also restricting other healthcare, reproductive healthcare access, and we're seeing those things rise. So this is before Friday. And so I think that the voice of the physicians as advocates for our patients to say, 
I, I do care about public opinion. Sure, there's all these politicians that have their opinions. But what we also need to look at is our public health and how are we keeping the people in this country most healthy? Restricting abortion is the exact opposite thing to do. So Missouri became the first state in the country to outlaw abortion. That was because of a trigger law, meaning it was a law that as soon as Roe v. Wade fell in the Supreme Court, that trigger, that law came into effect. Your clinic is 10 miles from the border with Missouri. What did you see uh, at the Hope Clinic this weekend? So at the time, at the moment that the uh, Supreme Court decision was announced, and then shortly thereafter, the trigger ban in Missouri. We had about 15 patients physically in our facility, and about 10 of them were from Missouri. So when those patients walked in to our facility that morning, they walked in from a state where abortion was still legal, not really accessible, but legal. They went home to a state that had outlawed abortion while they were here in our facility. So the feeling really at our clinic in our facility throughout Friday, throughout Saturday, was extreme sadness. It was sadness for the patients who are here trying to get care and the message they're getting from their own states, their own communities, that what they are doing is illegal or wrong. We are also sad, extremely sad, for the patients that can't get to us and the effects that's going to have on their lives and the lives of their families and their and their communities. I think we knew this was coming. We've been planning for years, as Sarah mentioned earlier. We had really known in the last you know, five or six weeks probably exactly what this opinion would look like from the Supreme Court. But none of us were, I think, prepared for the extreme sadness that we felt as healthcare providers, that's front desk staff, doctors, nurses, anyone in this building, educators, felt this grief and sadness for really loss and loss for um, the 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 healthcare that patients are already having such a hard time getting and what it will mean for their lives. So Wild Woman ATL tweets this, what are our options other than moving out of the country or marching? I'm so disenfranchised with all the marching women have had to do since 2016 and our voices are still not being heard or recognized and change is not happening. And then here's a, a one specifically for you, Dr. King, to react to. Bipolar Boss Survivor tweets this, my husband and I had a stillbirth in March. We live in Austin, Texas. We want to conceive again, but the thought of being cornered into another tragedy that could put my life in danger is terrifying. What advice do you have for women who are in that position? I mean, I think that that tweet is really, the. I mean, this is exactly what everyone is facing across the country. What do I do with my own body? I'm terrified that I can't choose what to do with my own self. I can't choose to, <clears throat> excuse me, access the care that I need. And the advice is loud and clear. Abortion is legal in many places in this country. And there are networks of organizations, funds, and patient support organizations trying to help patients get to those access points. But there will be a lot of patients that don't get to the, those resources. And we know really that this, these restrictions and these bans are going to disproportionately affect patients who already have a hard time getting health care, patients who already have a hard time connecting with resources. And so uh, my message is you've got you know keep looking, keep searching the internet. We are trying to put out information as, as quickly as we can to patients. We just know we, we can't get to all of them, but we are trying. So we also want to get the message to the patients. Keep trying. Call us. We will connect you with resources and not just Hope Clinic. All of the abortion providers really um, will help connect Regardless of where patients. you live. Yeah, exactly. 
Now, according to the Guttmacher Institute, more than half of medical abortions in the U.S. performed in 2020, at least, were done so with a pill or a pair of pills. Mifepristone and misoprostol were approved by the FDA more than 20 years ago. They are approved for use up to 10 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, And President Biden talked about how the government is protecting access to those medications. The American Medical Association, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, wrote to me and Vice President Harris stressing that these laws are not based on are not based on evidence and asking us to act to protect access to care. They say by limiting access to these medicines, maternal mortality will climb in America. That's what they say. Today, I'm directing the Department of Health and Human Services to take steps to ensure these critical medications are available to the fullest extent possible. Sarah, when it comes to these medications, how significant will protection of access to them become for people who who live a distance away from a state where um, abortion access is still insured? Well, I think just to sort of um, frame the context, medication abortion, abortion pills are now the most common uh, choice for people seeking to end pregnancies According to data published earlier this year by the Guttmacher Institute, um, that number has been creeping up, but it's over half now. And, um, you know, I think the reasons are probably very obvious. It it doesn't require surgery. Uh, People can take abortion pills and terminate a pregnancy, you know, in their own home for the most part, Um, you know, done properly and at the right stage of pregnancy. And so um, this is... You know, traditionally, I guess, the way that a person would access medication abortion is by consulting with a physician, being prescribed the pills. There's a protocol, a series of pills, as you mentioned, um, taking them um, as prescribed. And um, they'd experience something, you know, similar to a miscarriage in terms of the, uh, you know, the medical aspect of it. But uh, today, and, and increasingly something I've been reporting on really for a few years now, Um, More and more activists are trying to educate women about self-managed abortion, as it's called, or self-induced abortion. Um, That can look like, in some cases, getting pills online. There are online pharmacies and nonprofit organizations that work with patients to find them. Uh, You know, I can't vouch for them, but they say they vet them. and, And I know that this is an increasingly popular choice, especially in places where there aren't clinics or it's difficult to get access. Now, there are some big questions about what that looks like legally in states that have banned abortion, and as Professor Ziegler said, particularly for people who might assist someone in getting yeah. um, getting those pills because of the way that these laws are written. And I think there will be there will be tests c- to come of, you know, can the mail service be used for this kind of thing, for instance, and can people be prosecuted from outside of state their state? I'm Celeste Headley, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, to let us know what you think or have your questions answered on future shows, tweet us. At 1A. Let's get back to our conversation about the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade by adding a new voice to the conversation. Joining me now is Dr. Donna Harrison, CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And Dr. Harrison, we really appreciate you joining us. Russell emails this, I and my millennial daughter live in St. Louis, Missouri. She wants to get a tubal ligation, believing that is safest, especially now that legislators have already attempted and are continuing to push a ban on contraceptives. Although she and her partner use protection, he's seriously considering getting a vasectomy. Dr. Harrison, I wonder, again, 
72 hours since the decision, I'm sure it was at the top of your mind throughout the weekend. Anything new come up for you about the significance of the Supreme Court's decision? Well, thank you for having me on first. Um, The Supreme Court's decision does not make abortion illegal throughout the country. What it does is turn the decision about abortion legality over to the states, where it should have been in a democracy for the last 50 years. So nothing actually changes for OB-GYNs who have not been performing abortions. And in fact, 85 to 93% of OB-GYNs do not perform abortions in two different studies across the country. So for 85% 85 to 93% of OB-GYNs, absolutely nothing changes. We give good care, we treat ectopic pregnancies, we take care of women who have miscarried. The one thing that we don't do is that we don't kill human beings in the womb. That is what an elective abortion is. An elective abortion is a procedure done with the specific intent to produce a dead baby. That was shown very clearly at the uh, partial birth abortion hearings when abortionists were asked the difference between a birth and an abortion. And they said, we make sure the baby's dead because that's the purpose of an elective abortion. So um, partial birth abortion isn't a medical term, so I want to steer away from a a term like that, which is more political in nature. Uh, But many state laws restrict abortion, and they do not make exceptions uh, or make very few exceptions for patients who have ectopic pregnancies, which is life-threatening. Here is Dana, Dana in Washington with her story. My life was jeopardized by an ectopic pregnancy during an abortion gag order in the 1980s. And um, as it turned out, I had a twin who was not discovered. It was just all so complicated. Uh, Pregnancy is complicated. So according to the American Association of Family Physicians, ectopic pregnancies account for almost 3% of all pregnancy-related deaths. What would you say to, to Dana? I am very familiar with all of the laws in all of the states and all of them allow for an exception for the life of the mother, and an ectopic pregnancy is a life of the mother issue. So there is not one state law anywhere in the country, nor is there planned to be, as far as I know, any state law in the country that jeopardizes ectopic pregnancy care. It's very different. Even ACOG admits that ectopic pregnancy care is different than elective abortion. Elective abortion is a procedure done specifically for the purpose of guaranteeing that the baby dies. That's what an, a, an elective abortion is. So, Sarah, let's go to you and, and your response to Dr. Harrison's um, comment about the fact that the, the mother's life is always protected. Well, uh, you know, I, I've heard that before. Uh, I'm not a physician, but doctors I, I talk to um, have expressed concern about, you know, again, some of the gray areas when it comes to treating whether it's ectopic or a miscarriage in progress or, you know, even a pregnancy that is, has a, you know, a diagnosis that's incompatible with life, which is something that sometimes happens, again, to, to very wanted pregnancies. Um, you know, some of my colleagues have been doing reporting in the last couple of days about just the uncertainty and fear that many providers are, you know, say they're fearing or feeling right now um, about how they can make those complex medical decisions. You know, one doctor I talked to several months about, ago about this larger question said, I mean, I went to years of medical school, I went to a residency, you know, and spent years doing a specialty training, it takes many, many years, you know, um, to, as, as all doctors know, to become a physician, as Dr. Harrison knows. And, um, you know, those, I guess I, I would, 
I'd be interested in hearing her respond to how you make those very sort of fine-tuned, difficult decisions, you know, in the moment where, you know, perhaps a patient's health or life is at risk. Yeah. And and uh, going into whether or not the uh, abortion legislation in, in states will become even more restrictive is is another question. Um, and one more question to you, though, Dr. Harrison, because according to the CDC, the maternal mortality rate <clears throat> for black people who give birth is more than three times higher than it is for white people. Um, black people are also more likely to experience a miscarriage. That's often treated with that same medication that is often used for abortions. As a physician, how concerned are you that confusion um, over the different restrictions, the different laws in different states will actually end up in causing the lives of more pregnant people? A physician should be able to read a clearly written law that basically forbids elective abortion. Elective abortion is a procedure for which there is no medical indication by definition. So what you're forbidding is procedures which have no medical indication. So any physician should be able to tell when there's a medical indication and when the procedure is purely for the purpose of producing a dead baby. I ask, I'm going to interrupt just for a second because we heard earlier a story from a woman who who got pregnant, her baby was uh, passed away inside the the womb. She was in Texas. She had to go to Colorado in order to save her own life. How concerned are you that that situation may arise in even higher numbers in the years going forward? If her baby is dead, then that's a miscarriage. So there is no issue. What's forbidden is the intentional ending of the hum- of the life of the human being in the womb. So if she has a dead baby, there is no issue at all. And that should be clear to anyone who reads the law. Uh, we've been talking to Dr. Donna Harrison, CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And Dr. Harrison, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Mary, I think you wanted to jump in and respond to Dr. Harrison's comment on the fact that there would be no confusion um, over, say, a, 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 a stillbirth or whether or a miscarriage. I think that this is just a question potentially of unintended consequences of these laws, because one thing that, that people don't realize is that the new the new trigger laws often authorize punishments that are much harsher than anything we would have seen in the 60s or earlier, um, sometimes up to life in prison. And so I think what Sarah's seeing in her reporting isn't necessarily the intention of someone like Dr. Harrison, but if you tell a doctor, essentially, if you get it wrong, you could go to prison for life and lose your medical license. There are going to be many physicians who are not going to want to come close to crossing the line, even if, in fact, after the fact, legislators or others who are in the pro-life movement would be perfectly comfortable with what they're doing, for example, with an ectopic pregnancy. When you when you make the risk calculus such that doctors are quite literally wagering the rest of their life or liberty, um, they're going to be probably more hesitant to give care to people who have ectopic pregnancies or incomplete miscarriages. And I think that's part of what we're seeing. Um, I don't necessarily, I'm, I'm not saying that's the intention of anyone, but I think when you put penalties that high on the books, you sometimes are going to have really profound unintended consequences. Sarah, we heard um, Mary talking about unintended consequences, the impact that these restrictions, um, both current and future, could have on maternal health, miscarriages, What are the unintended consequences that you as a journalist are watching for, whether it be political or economic or other? 
I think that was really well put, by the way, and I think it matches my reporting as well. I just want to say, I mean, I don't know anyone in the anti-abortion movement who would say uh, that they don't want a doctor to be able to treat, for example, an ectopic pregnancy, um, but that may be an unintended consequence. I think where it gets more murky, though, is uh, situations like we were talking about earlier in the program um, where you know you have often in pregnancy, all too often, situations where the fetus is still uh, you know still has a heartbeat or some cardiac activity, um, but the pregnancy is is dangerous for the mother or is is doomed for whatever reason. And you know these are heart wrenching situations. I've talked to many patients who are in them, um, and and I think that is really where the rubber sort of meets the road with these medical and personal and ethical decisions. And states are now taking away a lot of latitude for doctors and patients to make those decisions. So I just want to be clear about that. Um, In terms of other unintended consequences, I mean, I think one of the big questions is, is how will this um, sort of play out with Americans. We were just talking about the fact that many Americans uh, support abortion rights, at least in some situations, um, but many Americans also favor some restrictions on abortion. I mean, that is the most popular, stable public opinion for for decades is that abortion should be legal in certain circumstances. So what does that really mean? And how does that translate um, at the voting booth? And in which party is able to sort of mobilize around this issue. Um, those are those are some of the questions that I have going forward. Well, we do have a question for you from Chris, who emails this. Uh, what are the implications for women serving in the military? They may be on a base, not by choice, in a state with a ban. Can the armed services or the president ensure access to care in another state? And I should mention that the Pentagon uh, released a statement, part of which said the Department of Defense is examining this decision closely and evaluating our policies to ensure we continue to provide seamless access to reproductive health care as permitted by federal law. Mary, the the ripple effects of this um, go so far beyond a rollback of abortion rights. It's a challenge to legal precedent. It raises concerns about the future of other civil rights cases. Um, Justice Clarence Thomas, in his concurring opinion, mentioned same-sex marriage, same-sex relationships, and contraception. What threat does this pose, existential or otherwise, to public trust in the court? I think it's pretty significant. I mean, we've seen before this decision was issued, Gallup found that about only 25% of Americans approve of the court. Um, That's by far the lowest it's been in the history of polling on the court. And we would expect, obviously, for that to go down further. Um, I think the reason for that, and we have pretty strong evidence, that when people have a problem with the court, it's not necessarily because the court's members are progressive or conservative, it's when the court is perceived as partisan. Because after all, the court's members are not elected, they're not democratically accountable. And so when people think what the court is doing is politics rather than law, they tend to disapprove of the court. And I think one of the problems this court is facing is that it's moving on a lot of fronts at once, all very high-profile issues, all more or less delivering on campaign promises that Donald Trump made. Now, I'm not saying that that's what the justices are trying to do, although... That's possible as well. Um, yeah. But that's what it's going to look like to people, right? That if conservatives yeah. win all the time, it's all in high profile cases and it all yeah. happens very quickly. Yeah. Uh, people are going to see the court as a partisan body, a partisan and unaccountable body, and that's going to do damage to the legitimacy of the court. And I think okay. potentially damage to people's faith in democratic institutions altogether, if the, yeah. because after all, the court is one of them. Mary Ziegler is a professor of law at the University of California, Days- Davis, raising some warning flags. She's also author of Abortion and the Law in America. America, Roe v. Wade to the president, present, and Sarah McCammon is a national correspondent for NPR. Thanks so much to both of you. 
Remember, the 1A podcast is a great way to catch up on anything you might have missed. Today's producers were Chris Remington and Haley Blassingame with reporting from June Leffler. This program comes to you from WMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Celeste Headley. This is 1A.